You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad and a feature of being part of the Irish diaspora, whether you are Irish born or not, is that over the last 11 years, I think it was, the Irish government initiated a presidential recognition award program. And one of our people here in Ottawa, Pat Kelly, was on the honours list the first year. And Pat is very well known in the Ottawa community. But in 2021, Bridget Brownlow was acknowledged for her wonderful work in the Peace, Reconciliation and Development category. And Bridget is based in the Maritimes. She met Michael D. Higgins for the first time in December as the recipient of one of his highest honours. And she is the only, she was the only Canadian in 2021 among the 11 people who received this 2021 Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad. And it said 11, and that is an indication, given that the diaspora constitutes 72 million, we are told, that there are 10 or 11 people acknowledged every year for the work that they do. So they, uh, how people are, are acknowledged is an indication of the wonderful work that they have brought to the Irish and the Irish diaspora. And now in its 18th year, uh, the Peace Education Programme is a partnership between St. Mary's University and the Peaceful Schools International, SMU, students help to, where students help to facilitate peace, education and conflict resolution workshops with children in elementary schools overseas. And in Nova Scotia, uh, and it's in Nova Scotia also, the program has grown to include conflict management and peace education training and has established partnerships with colleagues at Yale University and Queen's University in Belfast. Bridget Brownlow is here with me. Bridget, thank you so much for coming along and congratulations. Thank you very much, Austin. What a privilege to have been invited to your show. I'm extremely grateful. And, um, well, I, uh, you know, with great humility, um, accept your uh, congratulations. I, I must start by saying that this award does not belong to me. This award belongs to the, literally the hundreds of individuals and thousands of children who have participated in our programming uh, for almost 20 years in Northern Ireland, the North of Ireland. Um, and so I found it somewhat awkward uh, to uh, be bestowed with such an opportunity, um, given that uh, so much work has uh, gone into this program, um, both in Ireland and in Canada. So uh, while it was a great privilege, um, it really does belong to many, many people who've contributed. So Bridget, like so many wonderful works that happen out there, a lot is under the radar. Yes. And that's one of the great things about the Presidential Awards is that it endeavours to go below the radar. And the first thing I will have to say is, who is Bridget Brownlow? Because um, you <laughs> appear as receiving this. And yes, down in, in the Maritimes, people will know. But who is Bridget Brownlow and what's the Irish connection here? Right. <laughs> and that's so true, actually, that, you know, a great deal of the success of the work is because precisely it is done under the radar. And particularly in the north, this is of great importance um, to be able to facilitate um, meaningful work within Loyalist and Republican working class communities, which is the, the area in which I've been most engaged, 
we have been most engaged um, is done with great sensitivity and under the radar. So who am I? Well, um, what a great existential question <laughs> uh, in, in connection to the, uh, to the work and, and to where my heart and my uh, dedication over the past two decades uh, comes from um, is really uh, my grandfather is from uh, the north. He was born in the Shankill area um, in Belfast, immigrated to Canada, and um, became part of the uh, Canadian diaspora here. Um, so I uh, come from a mixed background in terms of um, my heritage uh, in the North. And that has allowed, um, allowed me to navigate, and again, um, with great sensitivity, respect, and um, in a quiet way, um, under the radar, so that people from both communities, or you know, all communities really, uh, have a level of trust, and um, we've developed strong relationships over the years, whether it be with um, ex-combatants. I do a great deal of work with ex-combatants or ex-POWs, um, both the loyalist and republican communities. Um, particularly working with the loyalist uh, working class at this time has become um, a wonderful opportunity where my background connects very nicely with aspirations for moving forward in a an inclusive and structured way um, so that there can be a level of reconciliation and peace that is um, that's supporting everyone on the island of Ireland. What I just heard reminds me of something one of my former um, bosses used to say. And he used to say, it's amazing what can get done when no one is looking for credit. And what yeah. I just heard from you was this um, wonderful um, acknowledgement of, in a way, what happens, as you said, below the radar, and that it requires, in a way, that um, standing back and recognizing that what is at stake here is much more important than me or the other players, but that bringing the people together. And that ties in, I guess, with who Bridget is as a conflict resolution as part of very much who you are. We, um, we originally uh, connected um, with the North at the time of the Holy Cross um, protest in Ardoin in 2001. And some of your listeners may or may not be familiar with this. And while it was an extremely uh, traumatic and, um, you know, seminal event, um, it, it allowed the introduction of our Canadian nonprofit um, to begin to build relationships with these communities. And I'm very proud to say that, you know, fast forward to 2021 and we work very closely with both Holy Cross Primary Girls School and the State School across the street, Wheatfield Primary. Uh, my, my efforts and the efforts of my, my colleagues and others who um, 
who work very hard. There is so much work that has done so much positive work, cross-community work. Um, it's um, it's truly a, a, an absolute privilege for me to be able to have been a part of this over these years. Um, and and to be able to return to these communities with a level of optimism and encouragement and genuine care that people's voices are being heard, that the world has not forgotten about them, um, that we do want to support and provide resources in it. And uh, while all the while being mindful, Austin, of the self-determination of the people on the island of Ireland. So, you know, this is not my, it's not my place to make decisions as to what outcomes people want to reach. I see my role as being very privileged to quietly support uh, dialogue, respectful, peaceful, and meaningful dialogue uh, among all community members. Whoever wants it, it's for those who want it, and many want it. So there's a great deal right now of a level of optimism, somewhat of a level of urgency, given what's going on um, between border poles and protocol and uh you know, to ensure that with the you know looming questions around a united Ireland, how then how then do we ensure that voices who are marginalized are not left behind, and that the opportunity for uh, engaged and sustained relationships and dialogue is supported in whatever way possible? It has always struck me that. Um, the north of Ireland and the divisions in the north of Ireland are mirrored in many other parts of the world. It's just a different set of um, descriptives that describe, yes. that indicate. And that the other thing that has always struck me is that <clears throat> the difference between, be it the Falls and the Shankill, is that when you get down and talk to an individual, both individuals have the exact same aspirations. But Absolutely. But both sides would look that the other side is in interfering with their ability for the exact same aspirations. And that it's a tremendous challenge to try to bring uh, those two conflicting perceptions of the same um, um, goals and ambitions together and if I can use an example in a way and uh, in a way that we have the same skeletons but they are wrapped in different flags yes uh, yeah absolutely and and what we're seeing now is um, an opportunity um, as a result of staying connected in these quiet ways and um, the the youth and when I say youth, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to, um, you know, young people, both Republican and loyalist, um, who are the next generation, who are the post-Good Friday uh, generation, who want to move forward and have different ideas and different areas of common ground for which uh, they find it very challenging to both respect and also step aside from the legacies of the past. So as you would know, and as I'm sure many of your listeners know, 
legacy issues in and of themselves are are very important and very um, specific to the individual or individuals, what I might need or what you might need in terms of closure around legacy issues is very different at different among individuals and different within the communities. So what, what we're observing are this next generation being very aware and conscious, also being conscious um, of not being influenced so greatly that they cannot move ahead. So an example I'll provide you is I've been working with a, a wonderful group of um, up-and-coming Republican and Loyalist leaders, um, both from working-class backgrounds um, and who agree on many issues. Um, and while they work very hard to understand, and then we support this, understand, not necessarily agree on some, they agree on many more issues, you know, as you alluded to earlier, than one might realize at first glance. And so it's working on those areas of common ground, whether that's climate change, whether that's decriminalization of, you know, cannabis, whether it's, you know, they, this generation has some very different ideas on how they want to move forward. So, so making certain that we are in a position to quietly and consistently encourage that movement and that relationship building um, is part of the is part of the journey, and a part of it I'm extremely privileged and grateful to be still here for. <laughs> I have a regret that there was a day I was in Belfast. I was in the Smithfield Market. Yes. And I sat down, and we were having a cup of coffee, and there were a limited number of tables. So we sat, asked a gentleman, well, could we sit with him? And he said yes. And he was one of the initiators and founders of the Merge School movement, I, and I'm using the wrong terminology, but that they established um, the integrated schools. Yes. The integrated schools. Yes. And I didn't have a recording device with me because he was a wonderful man, and he had a wonderful understanding, empathy, and and just and we sat and we chatted, and I had nothing to record. <laughs> <laughs> so, because it would have been wonderful, um, but it, back then, and this now would have been a number of years back. Um, but that gave me tremendous hope. That Absolutely. At that, because that's where it has to happen. It has to happen at the education level. And and I suppose part of the learning um, over the the journey of the past two decades has been. Um, and I, I always coach my students uh, when I bring uh, students over you know, to, to Northern Ireland, to the North, um, around, you know, we talk a great deal about humility and recognizing that people are where they are. It is not our place to suggest that they move in any direction whatsoever, but to certainly offer our experience and, and, and hope and encouragement. And so regarding integrated education, only 3% uh, there are about 3% of schools in the north are integrated. And so supporting supporting the integrated school movement is something that, that we certainly would do. We would also support state schools in whatever place they are at, C- quiet cross-community, under-the-radar connections between state schools and Catholic-maintained schools. great deal of time is um, spent fostering those relationships, which do exist, but in the current you know, where we are currently, um, cannot so openly 
uh, celebrate quite, not quite yet. Um, some of the successes, the many successes they've had. Um, so in, in terms of the overall, uh, programming, we include integrated schools, the integrated schools who would like to participate in the programming, um, Irish medium. So we have a great, um, great longstanding relationships with Irish medium schools in, in the north, um, state and, uh, Catholic maintained. So that diversity and inclusion of all school systems is something that's been uh, critical uh, to my mind and experience in moving forward. Bridget, what would you say has been the biggest challenge that you have encountered? Um, biggest challenge at this stage. So there, you know, there are many challenges along the way, and those have just proven to be opportunities in disguise for um, creating uh, an even deeper and more um, comprehensive network of um, of support. So I think one of the greatest challenges now would be to ensure that we have the funding and support necessary to continue um, with this work on the ground. Now, of course, the pandemic has you know, put a wrench into this. Um, I did manage to, um, after the ceremony in Dublin in early December, I did manage to uh, spend 10 days in, in Belfast working with the uh, members of the Irish Republican Socialist Party who are doing community activist work, again, working with former um, POWs, teachers, principals, um, a whole range of different training opportunities. So it's that continuous support on the ground with sufficient funding. I have to say that the Irish Embassy has been wonderfully supportive. Um, I am uh, in, I have a great debt of gratitude to the new ambassador. He's not so new now, I suppose, Dr. Raymond McKee. His deputy head of um, mission, John Boylan, and second secretary, Sally Bourne all of whom have been extremely supportive in working um, with myself and my colleagues to ascertain what would be the most efficient strategy moving forward over the next number of years to include. Oh, so let me dial back here a bit, Austin. (laughs) Really, when I focus, when I'm thinking this through now and talking about challenges to ensure that we are including an extraordinary level of effort to support the loyalist working class community. Um, it will come as little surprise to many of your listeners that um, this, these communities within the north of Ireland have been, um, have a feeling of, of, of having been left behind, mm-hmm. um, a lack of representation at a political level, um, a lack of having a voice but yet do amazing work under the radar, you know, cross community. Um, and so working with these communities in a sustained and supportive and understanding and compassionate manner, to me, is one of one of the great challenges moving forward. Bridget, when you say that, one of the things that strikes me, and it's not peculiar to Ireland in any way or North America, but the above the radar, Unfortunately, the messaging 
that can be coming from the establishment above the radar can be very, very polarizing, yes. uh, can be antagonistic, and can make it particularly difficult to actually try to counteract the potential influence that that can be ha- having on the people who are working like yourself under the radar. Oh, absolutely. So we try to step back from that as much as possible. I would, um, you know, I would respond to that by reassuring you um, that, well, well, that is ever present. Um, those who are working on the ground in a cross-community effort uh, to maintain peace at interface areas, to ensure that, um, you know, uh, things don't kick off uh, unnecessarily preventative measures, particularly, you know, certainly during the summer months. Um, those, those individuals are not so much affected, um, I would suggest anymore, by the rhetoric at, at, at higher levels within, within the political sphere. And one might be able to even um, further validate that by recognizing that the North was without any government for three years and things continued to function. Um, all of all of my colleagues who do this wonderful work, um, you know, in all communities, continue to work together. They didn't stop for a moment. And so that gives me great hope in, in that people will not be as sidelined as one might think or as divided as one might think by some of the... Um, political nonsense sometimes that can get in the way. Mm. I want to move you south to the border and your trip to Ireland in, in December and getting <laughs> to travel to Oris and Uchtaron. Um A tremendous honour. It must have been a wonderful experience. Yes. It was a tremendous honour and um, and a wonderful experience. You know, it was... Uh, I have... Um, I have never um, experienced such a sense of, of uh, being appreciated. And uh, and it was quite a surprise. I have to tell you, Austin, it was quite a surprise because I myself was not familiar with these awards and, um, you know, was not aware of the, the nomination. So I anticipated that if something were to um, come of it, it would perhaps be a, a notice in a, um, I don't know, a newsletter or <laughs> something. I had no idea that this was actually going to, going to happen. And so, of course, the, the honor in meeting, um, uh, President Higgins and, um, having discussions with, uh, Minister Coveney, uh, in particular was a great opportunity, but an even greater opportunity was the potential doors that have opened, uh, to continue the work in a meaningful and constructive way. So I have now been, again, provided the privilege of meeting with different individuals with whom I never would have connected. And again, I refer back as well to the embassy, the Irish Embassy in Canada, um, were it not for this this award. So I am delighted and will do whatever I can to leverage um, this honour, again, which belongs to many, many other people, um, so that the work can continue in a sustained and meaningful way. And 
as you and I were chatting before we started um, this the the official interview, um, yes. what this does is, as you just pointed out, it brings you into contact with a diaspora network, yes, uh, and that they are able to leverage your experience and you're able to leverage their experience. And I think of what I would imagine is it. Um, and <laughs> I don't mean to, but you probably got your booster shot in Arsanutra. Ar- I did. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it gives you that um, encouragement and the drive to say, you know, yeah, we're doing something. It's meaningful. And it's yes, yes, it's not about me, but we're doing something and it's meaningful. We're going to keep doing it. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and the, you know, the cost of conflict, there's, there, you know, when we look at the importance of teaching peace education and conflict management skills uh, to human beings, certainly, you know, Ireland, the north of Ireland and Northern Ireland does not have um, a monopoly on uh, doing this in, in, in a, a, a way that is different than anyone else. We all need to be doing this within our own curriculum, within Canada, within you know, the Western world, uh, the entire planet, we need to be doing a much better job of teaching peace at the earliest age possible. So if one looks at um, the history and the legacy of the conflict in the North, there are no people more um, cognizant and impacted by the cost of conflict. And that translates into a willingness and an openness and a, a genuine uh, interest in participating in conflict management and peace education programming. Uh, so, for example, I work with um, I work in an academic institution, and you know, in any institution where there may not be only people who come from other countries where there is a real cost. They've seen conflict. They've experienced conflict. We live in a very privileged society here. Not that we don't have our conflicts, but one must have a, a real understanding of, of just how costly they are and the amount of work that it takes to create a sustained peace. And I believe the people on the island of Ireland and in the north uh, very much understand this. You mentioned something there that's... Um the challenges that uh, result in attitudes being formed at a very young age. And it brings me back to 1970. Yes. And in 1970, I was doing a little bit of work where some people from the north were um, came down south as refugees. And yes. uh, uh, within the group that was there, a, a, a younger, a, maybe a teenager came up and said, uh, or little younger brother who was maybe four, three or four, five in that age group was um, she said ask him what happened to his foot because he had hurt his, his foot Yeah. so I said to him what happened to your foot yeah. and he said oh I was guarding the back fence and the sniper got me Yeah. and he yeah. believed it and what had happened was he had banged his toe on a stone right, right. but and, that was yes and that I knew was going to colour his life Absolutely. You know, part of part of the work, part of the training um, 
one of the many uh, strands of training that we that we do in training and education in peace at peace and conflict studies is to have people examine what their early experiences were with conflict, because this does impact the way that we manage conflict mm-hmm. as we get older. And if we don't teach our children peace, somebody else will teach them violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity is um, is there. People are engaged um, with it. And, um, you know, I, I can't, um, you know, I can't convey strongly enough how much optimism and um, desire there is among all communities that I've been working with over the years uh, to continue and move forward in this peaceful direction. I know not a lot of the agreement in the North was um, made or facilitated um, because of uh, the EU and it, yes. remo- it effectively removed the border and that Brexit literally has thrown a spanner in the works and it has also um, created fears within both communities uh, and and uh, and it's not something that's going to go away. It's something that has to be worked with. That's and right. You must have noticed over the last two to three years um, a real change in, I won't say comfort levels, but just in in some way in comfort levels of the people that you're dealing with. Well, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think that that links back to one of your earlier comments around um some of the you know higher level rhetoric that one can hear in the media and whatnot and and that that can be divisive and adversarial um, again I, I think that people are able to um, well well they may be impacted by this um, they are able to see the reality that you know and again having the experience of, of three years without a functioning um, government able to see that they they need to get on with it and it will be it will be up to them to get on with it. Uh, if there is the prospect of uh, a united Ireland uh, border poll, um, the protocol, all of these things, um, yes, they are challenges to um, to navigate. What's most important is that we equip, in my in my experience and and in my humble view, is that we equip people with the skills and the attitudes and the support to engage in dialogue around these sensitive issues. So next Friday, I have a, um, a virtual uh, meet and greet and class discussion whereby I will have um, young representatives from the working class loyalist community and Republican communities um, meeting with our ambassador Dr. McKee, um, also meeting with um, CEO of Cooperation Ireland and a number of other interested uh, participants and um, people who have been involved in the work over the years. And we will first discuss the ethical obligation that um, we have to promote um, the teaching of peace education and conflict management in Northern Ireland. And so for those in the North to um, be able to openly discuss why this is so important 
in order to discuss any of these more um, challenging issues, they need to be equipped to do that. I'll throw a strange question at you. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> Are men the problem? Oh, well, <laughs> well, um, well, no, I, I could not say that men are the problem. However, I, I can, I can suggest that the inclusion of, uh, women within loyalist working class communities and supporting, uh, the voice of women in those communities as part of the overall dialogue in cross-community relations is extraordinarily important. And actually, I won't limit that to uh, loyalist class working because I also had the experience, I did a training session, you know, one of the most wonderful aspects of my, my journey through this work is um, the flexibility that it allows in terms of, of opportunities. So I facilitated a training opportunity for the uh, group of Irish Republicans, party activists, community activists, some former combatants. Um, and I did so by request in the Conway Mill. So I, I do a great deal of work in Conway Mill, but in areas of the mill that are heated. This this particular um, room was not. So I facilitated my first session with mittens and a coat and a hat and a group of men. <laughs> so in that context, yes, there were all men within that particular cohort. How I would address that going forward would be to try and very quietly and gently encourage the participation and inclusion of women from within that particular uh, working group. So uh, I don't think men are the problem. I think that uh, there is an opportunity to work much more diligently to include the voice of women. And that wasn't meant to be a trick question. (laughs) 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 We've run out of time, and I do want to thank you for taking the time. It has been wonderful um, getting to know you and chatting, and um, it's been fascinating, and I hope, and I have no doubt, that you will continue. Uh, to be a most powerful influence in helping in reconciliation, where it matters most in the younger group as they grow up and it changes society in that way. Bridget Brownlow, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Austin. It's been my privilege.